Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. People on the right, they've known about the collapse of systems and the potential for violence and the possibility of civil war um, since at least 2008. And they've been talking about it and promoting it uh, really since that point. I think what's starting to happen now is the left is starting to catch up. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Stephen Marsh, an author and columnist whose work has appeared in Esquire, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and elsewhere. His new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, details ways in which a civil war could realistically break out in this country. Stephen, welcome to Burn the Boats. Pleasure to be with you. So you're an outside observer uh, to what's going on here. Why does that matter? Well, I mean, I think being Canadian has a couple of advantages. I mean, for one thing, I mean, we're sort of outsiders. But on the other hand, I would say that we have a kinship relationship with Americans. So, you know, I have my Trump voting cousin in Seattle and I've got, you know, I've worked in America. I've lived in America. I love America. Our great literary scholar, Northrop Fry, once said a Canadian is an American who rejects the revolution. And I've always thought that that's a pretty accurate description. Um, so, you know, we're familiar, but at the same time, we're, we're different. And we, um, we have a sort of a, a little bit of distance on what happens in America. And that, and that gives us, um, you know, a, an advantage, a, a sort of different perspective. I think also, you know, everything that happens in America affects us so profoundly right? Um, that we are kind of always on the lookout for what's going to happen there because it'll affect our lives. I want to tease that out a bit because of what's going on uh, right now. Uh, and I'm going to provoke this part of the conversation with a, a quote from the book. I'm a Shakespeare geek. And so it, it jumped out at me when you wrote that Canada is the Horatio to America's Hamlet, a close yeah. and sympathetic and mostly irrelevant witness to the grand dramatics on the other side of the border. Can you really say that given what we're seeing now with the trucker protests and the cross-border instigations and God knows what else is going to be revealed in the coming weeks and months about, you know, larger conspiracies. But irrelevant, I, I think, underplays the relationship. You mean the trucker convoy? Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, I think actually it kind of provides a perfect example because, I mean— you know, the trucker convoy now is, a, is about a thousand people. It's pretty much entirely a proxy political struggle in, from America that's happening in Canada. So, you know, like Doug Ford, who's Rob Ford's brother and is the current premier of Ontario and is easily the most conservative politician in Canada, has called on them all to go home and declared them to be insur an insurrection that they and they he's declared a state of emergency around them. They have no political support of any kind. They have uh, if, certainly from uh, anyone in power. Uh, you know they're not going to affect Canadian healthcare policy one iota. And you know sixty percent of Canadians find them you know more or less disgusting. That's what the, the phrase they use in a poll. And eighty eight percent of this country is vaccinated. Right. So 
the effects of this are hugely exaggerated by the American media um, because, like, essentially what this is is the toxic political rage and loathing that have gripped America sort of spilling over to the Canadian side. Like, the Ottawa police have been overwhelmed by 9-11 calls and doxing calls, and they're all coming from America, right? They're all, or almost all of them are coming from America. So, yeah, I mean, I think, in a sense, of course, we're not immune from what's happening in America, but it's pretty clear that what's happened, that the trucker convoy is pretty much funded and organized and certainly move forward significantly by American forces. It's a very ugly situation, but, you know, I think it actually shows why Canadian systems are going to survive, whereas American systems are in such disarray that they can't really process crazy political actions like this anymore. Talk about that in the context of your analysis of the precursors to civil war conditions. It's not autocracies, and it's not democracies that wind up in this place. And you put Canada in the democracy column. Where's America? I think we can definitely put Canada in the democracy column. And also, to be clear, I think there's widespread support for institutions and solidarity for the institutions. And there's a wide range of transnational institutions like the Supreme Court, for instance. I mean, I have no idea what the political leanings of anyone on the Supreme Court are. You know, they're selected by different prime ministers of different political stripes, but no one cares. They're more or less selected by the the legal profession itself. So first of all, you're in an anocracy. That would be the technical term. So that's when so democracies like Canada, we're we're stable. Autocracies like Russia, those are also very stable. But when you're in between, when you're in the gray area between democracy and autocracy, that's where civil wars start and that's where things get very dangerous. You know, like the American political system is increasingly incapable of doing very basic things. You know, it took Joe Biden a year to get his diplomats in position. Uh, You know, there's constant threats of reneging on the debt. Getting budgets passed is increasingly difficult. And then, you know, you have polls where only 20% of Americans believe that their electoral system is fair. So you're really in a place where people's faith in their legal and democratic institutions is falling. And it's going to increase, that distrust is going to increase. I mean, by by 2040, 50% of the country will control 85% of the Senate. And I doubt whether people will then feel that they are living in a democracy. Can you talk about the cascading effects that complex systems experience? Because I think a lot of Americans feel in their gut that that our system is self-correcting. It has been right. before, right? Um, but you well, write about- civil war. I mean, you know, it's self-corrected with a civil war. You're right. It, sometimes it takes a paroxysm of violence to correct, and and that that's what the book is about. But you write about these self-defeating loops, Ezra Klein has called it the death loop of democracy. Right. How does your analysis of cascading systems implicate that? Well, yeah, I mean, that that's the basic- I would say intellectual premise of the book is that what we're facing in America is a complex cascading system. And that's why to me, the unimaginable keeps happening. You know, like if you'd gone back five years ago and said, there'll be tanks on the streets of Washington on the 4th of July, or a Republican president will openly support the dictatorship of North Korea, no one would have believed you. Like no conspiracy theorist imagined it. And the reason the unimaginable keeps happening is because things filter into each other. So it's not really the one thing. So it's not even the anocracy question or the decline of faith in institutions. It's that those things 
feed into hyperpartisanship, and also that feeds into inequality levels, which are at unbelievable levels in the United States. It also, you know, another force that's coming is environmental catastrophes, which are increasing and increase the instability of the system because they they increase the um, the likelihood of catastrophic damage that is uninsurable, um, and which you see both in Florida and California already. Um, you know, so it's it's these factors that feed into each other and and complement each other that lead to you know catastrophe, and so that's the that's the basic premise of it. It's a very abstract concept, which is why I sort of wanted to have these imagined scenarios to kind of put flesh on those bones. If you see what I mean? Yeah, we'll get to the imagined scenarios. Some of them are are vivid, uh, but the the foundations you you lay for those scenarios is pretty well grounded in in social science research and some yeah. of the work others have done. Um, did your book precede Barbara Walters or did you take... Um, uh, preceded by a week. By a week, okay. By a week, <laughs> yeah. I mean, her, her book takes a different approach, but it, I mean, I think that's kind of fascinating that she and I took really separate approaches and came to identical conclusions. Yeah, and so I want to get into the current landscape right now in which that classic American faith in our self-correcting politics feels almost completely eroded. You wrote this. In a poll taken in the aftermath of Trump's election, 31% of American voters predicted a second civil war would occur within five years. A panel of national security experts assesses the chance of a civil war over the next 10 to 15 years, and the consensus stood at 35%. This is no longer a fringe conversation. The fact that your book, The Next Civil War, appeared at almost the exact same time as another book about the next civil war says something about the cultural moment. Indeed. You know, the people on the right, they've known about the collapse of systems and the potential for violence and the possibility of civil war um, since at least 2008. And they've been talking about it and promoting it, uh, really, since that point. I think what's starting to happen now is the left is starting to catch up. Like American liberals are starting to realize these institutions, which we've been taught our whole lives, are, you know, the solution to history. And as you say, this perfect self-writing mechanism, actually, it isn't. And actually, um, the rules that apply to other countries in the world probably also apply to America, and that it is not um, as much as an exception as one might imagine. So, yeah, I mean, the United States, as it currently stands, is a textbook case of a country headed for civil war. I mean, I, I think that's what both of our books are about. But while the left, liberals, seem terrified of the prospect, mm-hmm. there's this weird fetishization of it on the right. And, and you've experienced that directly in your appearances on right-wing media outlets, Share some of that with us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just was, you know, going on a right-wing media and having someone say, well, would a civil war be such a bad thing? And I I have to say, when I was writing this book, like I talked to a lot of three percenters and, you know, radical militia members and so on. And, you know, so I'm familiar with that stuff, but I just did not think like the idea that a civil war would be a good idea could possibly occur to anyone. You know, I mean, South Carolina lost a third of its male population during the first civil war. You know, 600,000 people died. It's, I mean, I really genuinely believe it's the worst thing that can happen to a country worse than foreign occupation. So, yeah. And I mean, 
right-wing media I don't really care about. It's when you hear things like the governor of Kentucky talking about how the tree of liberty needs to be fed with the blood of patriots. That's that's what I find more worrying. Like when when actual political people who are elected – and in serious positions, um, talk about this stuff. Uh, that that's, or of course, you know, the Republican Party saying that January sixth is legitimate political discourse. Those are the things that keep me up at night. That might be attributed to just terrible PR, but I think the undercurrent is absolutely real. And I'm wondering if you have a theory as to to where it comes from. What is this attraction to to that kind of violence in our politics? You know, that's a fascinating question. I'm not sure I have a perfect answer. I mean, I'd actually like to hear your thoughts on this. But I mean, to me, there's obviously a fantasy element to it. So there's there, there's a, you know, an apocalyptic dramatization of ordinary life. It makes you feel like ordinary life is incredibly important and urgent, right? That a civil war is about to come. Then there's also, you know, um, one of the things I really, I, it took me a long time to understand talking to far right people was that they need knowledge to be esoteric, to believe in it. They don't believe something because it's true. They believe it because no one quite believes it yet. And they have access to some insider information and some theory that explains the world in a way that nobody else gets. So there's that spiritual dimension to it too. I think there's also just simple despair um, and pain. And then, you know, also, I don't think we should discount at all uh, straight racism, like just the simple loathing for other people of different types. So, I mean, to me, it would be a combination of those things. But I feel very strongly that my definition there is quite imprecise. Uh, The spiritual motivations of it are really profound and deep. And I'm not sure I fathom them in the book. I'm not sure I understand them even now. I mean, what do you think? (laughs) <laughs> That's I, I love it when uh, interviewees turn the tables. Um, well, I'm I think, curious. Yeah, no, I think you hit a lot of the right notes. I mean, you you say spiritual, but I think there. I'll go one step further and say there is a religious element to some of it. Yeah. Esch- es- eschatological, uh, not scatological, yeah. but you know the eschatology of the end times, right? Yeah. You you see, and that's very deep in America, right? The first book ever published in America was a description of the end of the world. Yeah. yeah. I think among many men drawn to this movement, there's that loss of a sense of purpose and meaning and no doubt. the feeling that their manhood is being assaulted. And how do you counter that better than buying a giant gun and, right. and being intimidating? What is interesting to me is that uh, when I when I look at the, the number of vets involved in this movement, very, very few of them are actual combat vets. Like it is oh, yeah. cosplay for even them. The, the, you know, when you go to these prepper conventions and things like that, I mean, the thing you can never tell, it's really hard to tell is like, is this a hobby? Like, like it feels like a hobby in which the fantasy of the overthrow of the federal authority is kind of a key part of the fantasy. But really, I mean, you know, I, I remember going to a prepper convention in Ohio where they were in this room talking about, uh, you know, preparations for a military engagement and like all the equipment you needed and all that stuff. And I looked around the room and I was like, well, I can tell you the first thing you guys need to do is be able to run a mile because no one in this room can run one mile. Everyone here is, you know, 50 to 100 pounds overweight to be involved in combat, you know. Um, so there's definitely cosplay elements to it. 
I got to say, that sense of humor comes through in the book as well <laughs> when you're recounting. I don't have it in front of me, but like uh, either a journal entry or a a blog post from the uh, the assassin, the fictional assassin. You you know you include typos, uh, which I find very funny. Um, There's so. I mean, I was just <laughs> at one of the trucker rallies today, and the misspellings. It's like I swear to God, it's like one out of three signs has a misspelling on it. I mean, it's something you notice right away whenever you go to these. I do anyway. Or this from your drop-in at the Ohio Prepper convention. I just found it. Uh, On the fringe of Bowling Green sits Woodland Mall. I know where that is. Mm -hmm. Where the Ohio Prepper and Survivalist Summit takes place, the several dozen booths sell not only a lot of guns, but also solar-powered flashlights that keep it charged for seven years and plastic buckets containing 120 emergency rations for $274.99. Gluten-free is available if you plan on a gluten-free collapse. Yeah. Um, at least you got a, a sense of humor about the dissolution of the well, I remember, <laughs> of American society. I remember just before I'd gone there, I'd just come back from Africa, like I'd been in Senegal. And so I was going to check out like the so-called Rust Belt and like how this the, – the argument then was that all this Trump stuff was – you know, from there were economic motives behind it. And I, Bowling Green's a beautiful little town. I mean, it is uh, like, you know, kind of American paradise kind of town. And they have that Dairy Queen there where you can get like it's huge portions on the Dairy Queen. And I was like, imagine going back to where I was in Senegal and explain these are the broke people. These people are upset because they don't have any money. Like it would just be so absurd. So what the hell is the fight over? You write it's going to be a war over meaning. (laughs) Explain. Well, I mean, the word that to me, like always presages this stuff is freedom. And their definition of freedom is uh, totally impossible, right? It's, you know, to speak again in religious terms, as we were talking before, it's messianic. It's it's like I've heard them describe property taxes as slavery, right? So, if property taxes are slavery, then who is not who in history has not been a slave? I mean, I guess some emperors. Uh, like that's why I don't think comparing it to fascism is particularly helpful because fascism had a real political program, and here what you have is the hatred of government in itself. And the loop, if I could describe it as a loop, is that they believe that they've come to believe that the more that you hate government, the deeper a patriot you are. Right. So they they express their love for their country in the destruction of its institutions. And that's the fundamental contradiction that they are bringing with them. And it's very frightening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. 
I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This is Alex Hastie, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. You know, I'll have to check the tape, but I think so far we have yet to mention Donald Trump. Um, I think I mentioned him one, once, but I, I don't think he's that important. I'll tell you that. Well, that's what I want to pull out of the book. You wrote that he's far less meaningful than either side understands and that the smartest thing he ever said uh, about his political career was in 2017. I didn't come along and divide this country. This country was seriously divided before I got here. Um and that division, if anything, has increased even with the, the waning of his influence. Right. I mean, the Biden years have seen increases in violence. I mean, the argument I find li- liberals find really hard, American liberals find really hard to accept in this book is my argument that if Hillary had been elected in 2016, everything in the book would still be true. And But I, I do firmly believe it because the trends we're talking about here are far above horse race politics. Like, I think if there's one thing to take away from this book, it's that the problems that America faces are not, you know, what Ted Cruz said last week or what Marjorie Taylor Greene put on Twitter or what Pelosi said or whatever. They're really structural. And if solutions are to be found, they have to be found structurally. So getting really mad about Donald Trump or indeed, you know, getting really mad about the the trucker convoy is pretty beside the point at this at this juncture. You have a litany of issues that are dividing us from, you know, the withering of national purpose to the the eroding of national solidarity, uh, loss of faith in institutions. You know, those all just wind up on a on someone's checklist. Can yeah. you share with us how that affects Thanksgiving dinners in America? I mean, like there are a couple of really great things that I found doing this research, but there was an amazing piece of research that they did about Thanksgiving dinners, which they did by geolocating people's phones and which is kind of creepy in a way. But basically if people were going from blue states to red states or red states to blue states for Thanksgiving, their Thanksgivings lasted, I don't have the number in front of me. I think it's an hour and a half less than ones where they're of the same political affiliation. I mean, hyperpartisanship in America is the defining hatred now. I mean, it, it, there's a number of metrics that show that it transcends race. Like Republicans are much less likely to hire Democrats or vice versa than they are to hire people of different races. And they're, they're much less likely to want their children to marry outside of party than they are to marry people outside of, of their races or their religions, which is truly extraordinary when you think about it. But on the other hand, you know, when you look at American life from the outside, the amazing thing is how like every last thing becomes subject to hyperpartisanship. Like Oreo cookies are now political. Like there's LGBTQ 
questioning cookies. And then on the other hand, you have like homophobic chicken at Chick-fil-A. And of course, this has real consequences when something like COVID, which, you know, is not political um, in most else in the world, just becomes incredibly political in the United States. And then, of course, it comes across the border to us in this distorted form. So, I mean, Americans are spoiling for a fight. Uh, that would actually make a really good title for a book. Like, like they are, they, they, they want everything needs to be invested with this political meeting. And once it does, it becomes toxic virtually instantly. And they, we are increasingly defined by what and who we are in opposition to. I mean, that to me is, um, that to me is the most horrible part of all. Yeah. I mean, that, that the political model that I use in this book is negative partisanship. I mean, there are others, but to me, it's the one with the best track record. It really does show how things work. And, you know, I mean, it's so good that its own proponents thought it was wrong about Donald Trump's election. I mean, it's very rare for a political scientist to publish the results of a model and say, oh, by the way, we must be wrong. And then it turns out to be right. What happens in American politics now, you don't vote for things. You vote against people. And that's why, um, you know, there is no common ground and even basic functions of government become impossible because it's just about who your enemy is rather than, you know, what can be achieved. But for that to result in civil conflict, groups would need to coalesce around a an ideology that includes violence. And historically, it has been a response to oppression. If you look at revolutionary movements across history. That seems to be flipped on its head in this case. It's the oppressors who are rising up. How is that happening? Well, there's this amazing piece of research by these English economists about India, um, where they, because they were able to get really good data from visa records, they were able to show that as Muslim expenditures rise to reach the Hindu level, so Muslims are sort of the the marginalized group in India, and as their numbers rise towards Hindu numbers, which are the main, you know, the the dominant ethnicity, that's when the violence starts. I mean, I think it's very important this study because it really shows that what's happening in America is not peculiar to its own racial history or its own racial pathologies. This is, in fact, something you see all over the world. You see it all in Africa, you see it in India, you see it in the Middle East. As marginalized groups rise towards equality, that's where the violence starts. And of course, that's that's a very dark thought because essentially white people are not losing. It's just that black people and uh, Latino people are not losing as much in compared to them. And they don't have this you know, downtrodden people to look down on, and that's what they're losing. And, you know, the study of who was at January 6th was at the insurrection. I mean, only about 15% were actually militia members or official members of militias. That's a whole other separate question. But a huge determining factor was that the people who came there had come from counties where exactly that had happened, where there'd been an influx of immigration and a rise to power of you know heterogeneous populations. So that does seem to me to be a prime motivation of what what is driving you know American civil strife, and of course you know America is slated to become a majority minority country by 2040, and that seems like a pretty scary date. For other countries, a huge barrier to entry for any insurrectionist movement is the ability to procure weapons. That yeah. barrier doesn't 
exist here. No. What did you see when you were out in Ohio or you went to Oklahoma as well, right? The, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, well, everywhere I went, like every, like if you, any prepper convention you go to any Oathkeeper convention, like there's always a gun show, right? Like there's always a small gun show at all of these events, but I did go to Oklahoma to the biggest of them all, Wanamakers, which is, you know, I could barely walk it in a day. Like it was just so enormous, but yeah, I mean, there's virtually no kind of weapon that they that is not accessible in the United States to a large group of the population. I mean, people make a big deal out of AR-15s, but they don't really have a very secure grasp on how many people have 50 caliber rifles. There's certainly like low-grade nuclear materials caught in the hands of uh, committed accelerationists. That's been caught a couple of times. So yeah, I mean, I think they have, they're, they're fully armed. Now, that doesn't really matter in the end because the U.S. military is the U.S. military and the Marines are who they are. But uh, you're definitely dealing with a population where access to weapons are, is not an issue, as opposed to somewhere in Europe where whenever even committed terrorists often have a great deal of difficulty getting even pistols. Right. But in any head-to-head engagement, I mean, I think you you see a pretty clear outcome if the military is asked to engage any militia movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone I talked to, like, I wanted a big battle scene. I was like, I want to know what the engagements will look like. I want to know, like, how will this look? And, you know, and I did get, you know, amazing experts to talk to me, um, including, you know, people who were responsible for drawing up battle plans for full spectrum operations in the homeland. But tactically, it's not really a question. Like it's not, they had nothing to tell me. They were like, we just simply walk over them. You know, they're, the Marines are the Marines. Like they're way, way, you can put them up against anyone. They're going to win. And certainly not, you know, ragtag groups of weekend warriors who have AR-15s. I mean, you know, that doesn't count much against, you know, helicopters. But that's, that's almost beside the point, if our oh, yeah. history with counterinsurrection has taught us anything, it's that we actually don't win even when we win. And if right. the goal is the delegitimization of government, what better way than, you know, a Bundy Ranch style um, face-off? Exactly. And Bundy Ranch was the FBI too, right? So the military is much more complicated. It's much like that's, that was ultimate. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, uh, You're thinking Ruby Ridge. I'm thinking Ruby Ridge, but actually the Bundy stuff was FBI too. And the Department of Homeland Security was there as well, I think. But anyway, it was a police action. Like a military action has a whole host of bureaucratic and legal problems with it that are enormous. Um, You know, for one thing, military people don't act without situational awareness, and it's extremely hard to get legally when you're making war against your own citizens. But yeah, I mean, the point is that just going and killing people doesn't do anything. In fact, it just makes things much worse and is to be avoided really at all costs because it once these things start, it tends to spiral out of control. So yeah, a military engagement would tactically be one-sided, but it would be totally counterproductive at the same time, right? Like it would, it would only spread the violence. This is probably my biggest issue with the book. I think by and large, the military gets that. And you saw that in some of its decisions 
to stand up to these threats to invoke the Insurrection Act. You know, you had the senior combatant commanders, you had the chairman himself say, no, we're not going to do that. Because I just don't think that is the most likely, um, what's your phrase, inciting incident or instigating incident? Well, you know, there are incidents from it in history, right? I mean, there is 1992 and there is Arkansas. Like, there are examples of it being done. And, you know, if you want to go further back to to the Whiskey Rebellion. Sure. But give us a contemporary, not totally contemporary, but like it was the bridge in Arkansas, right? Was that your inspiration? No, it was um, desegregation of schools. Oh, okay. And they had to bring in the military and they had to, um, they ordered the Arkansas Guard to barracks. I mean, they took it very seriously, right? Like they, like there were no people from Arkansas in the military force imposing it. And that didn't happen in 1992, but that was, of course, a much broader, that was just a riot, right? So that, that they were, that they were trying to bring under control. So there are models of it. I mean, you know, one thing I think when you read the history of counterinsurgency, at least that maybe was surprising to some, but like they, they never want to do it. Like before Vietnam uh, and before the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, the military took the presidents and said, like, look, this is really, really, really hard to do. But the president makes the call. And, you know, if the president tells them to do it, they would have to do it. So I don't think anyone in the military would ever want to do this ever. And of course, we saw that during Trump, like where they basically just refused because it was unconstitutional. But of course, Trump also didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know how to enact what needed to be enacted. Like he didn't know how to appoint a scrag and he didn't know how to do all this other stuff. But, you know, if someone who comes in who does know, like I think a president absolutely should put the military in that position. They, they, they take their oath very seriously. I mean, America is an institutional decline, as I said, but the military is kind of the exception. There's still huge amounts of trust in the military. And the military oath has stood up better than anything in Congress or the Senate or the political order. I mean, they, they it's not really been violated. So, I, I mean, it certainly would be a nightmare situation, but I think it's conceivable for sure. I think it's worth reminding people that President Trump's first act after losing the election was dismissing the Secretary of Defense because right. he wanted his people in charge. And there were people very close to him telling him that if if you want to stay in power, you need to control the guys with guns. They said that. Yeah. And I mean, I don't really deal with that in the book. No. Like, I don't really deal with the electoral problems in the book, mainly because they're extremely difficult for me to understand. And also because I couldn't really find reliable, like finding people who can talk to it in a sort of from 30,000 feet in the air who don't have an agenda is extremely, extremely hard to find. So I didn't do any of that uh, in the book because I, I didn't really feel like I could I knew what I was talking about or could know what I was talking about. But it's very much a real possibility. Right. I mean, what happens when a president wins the electoral college but loses by 10 million votes? I mean, that's easily foreseeable. Like that could easily happen. Um, who does the military side with then? It's it's that's a whole other nightmare. Yeah. So you paint the picture through a series of hypothetical scenarios of this breakdown of civil order, the outbreak of of mass violence, and it ends with secessionist movements. Mm-hmm. And this is where I just have a hard time as a Democrat living in a red state imagining that part actually happening. Civil strife, sure. But yeah. 
the one thing that was so much simpler about the first Civil War was that the division broke down geographically relatively cleanly. How do you right. separate a society in which the divisions are density divisions more than geographic yeah. divisions? I mean, like, obviously, that's me trying to figure out a way for this to end peacefully, right? Like, you know, trying to imagine a scenario where the tensions in the United States are resolved in some way that is not violence, Um like, as you know, from the book, like the book is basically a litany of how extremely nightmarish it is to try and separate in the United States. Like, never mind the U.S. Constitution. You also have the U.N. regulations, which are incredibly complex. And then to do it, you really need a lot of goodwill and good faith between the parties, which, of course, is exactly what's lacking. Um, I just think that violence is so horrible and political violence is so intolerable and it may be the subject of fantasy cosplay and like it's may sound fun you know on some weekend trip with the boys out in the woods of you know rural illinois but like when you get really down to it you don't want to leave your children a country where they're not secure right um where their physical security is at risk the whole time so you know, what's required for that is radical solutions. I mean, I think when marriages reach the point that America is in right now, you sit the kids down and say, you know what, it's time for this to come to an end. And, you know, America is, you know, ripe for that. Like the, the popularity of secession grows every, you know, every few years. Um, you know, it's majorities of the of Southern Republicans now. It's like 41% with California Democrats. But as you say, and I fully acknowledge and acknowledge in the book, it's a nightmare. Like it's, it's it's on the edge of what's possible. It's conceivable, but to get there would, in fact, be such a difficult problem. What's the alternative, the nonviolent alternative? I mean, I think you paint a pretty clear picture of catastrophe. Yeah. But is there a possibility for restoration? Well, I definitely think there's a possibility. I mean, I know this sounds like like I'm blowing smoke or something, but the American people are incredibly capable of reinvention, both in like, unlike any other country, certainly unlike Canada, uh, where we're just, you know, tootling along and trying to survive. Like they're capable of political reinvention in a way that no other country, I guess, with the possible exception of France is. And I actually have a great deal of faith in that, in the American people. I mean, when you talk about the self-writing mechanism, I mean, I wonder how much it's self-writing, it's a self-writing mechanism and how much it's like American people arrive at a crisis and then they figure out they have to solve it and then they solve it. I would say at this point, the solutions are radical. So secession would be one. Another one would be a new constitutional convention. Jefferson said a constitution should only last 19 years. Otherwise, it's a contract with the dead. And, you know, the, the American constitution is a great work of genius, but it's 200 nearly 50 years old and it has devolved into a contract with the dead. And I think it really needs, you know, writing in plain English in a way that can be understood outside of these elaborate you know, interpretations by court systems that, you know, people are dubious about their legitimacy anyway. So I think what is required is pretty profound. I think, you know, as I say in the book, like the hope that has to be put aside here is that everything's going to work out. That's not going to happen. 
Like it's not going to be like the, suddenly there's the sixties and then it's the seventies and everyone's, you know, key parties and lava lamps and whatever. Like that's not what's going to happen. What requires is really, really profound political action. And I mean, the problem is that as these systems collapse, they make correcting themselves much harder, right? Like, you know, a, a system that can't even agree on a, appointing diplomats, you know, it's very hard to imagine a, a real constitutional convention. But, you know, increasingly, I think people are realizing that their choices here are between that and catastrophe. Can any of those nonviolent alternatives occur in a hyper-armed society? Um, I mean, it's more difficult. I'm not sure that's the part that I would say would be the makes it the most difficult. I mean, I think the the hyper-partisanship makes it really, really hard to figure out a way out when you just have people who literally only come to power by hating their opponents and reveling in the hatred for their opponents, it really becomes quite difficult to negotiate when essentially you're just screaming at each other. You know, Canada's heavily armed too, right? Like we're, we have a 50%, um, 50% of households in, in Canada own a gun. Uh, now that's because we have a lot of people who live in the country and, you know, they're not military grade weapons. They're mostly rifles for, you know, hunting and farming and so on, because we are, we have, you know, this wilderness that we're in. But nonetheless, like, you know, that level of weaponry doesn't seem to prevent us from functioning as a democracy. You know, Switzerland is armed to the teeth. Uh, so, and, it, and it's, of course, a perfectly functioning democracy. So I, I don't know if it would be the weapons so much as the fetishization of weapons. You know what I mean? The, like the, yeah, the, I do. Like the love of violence. Like, like all of my uncles own guns, but they would never they use them for getting pigeons off the roof. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it, 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 it's a tool. It's a tool that you use around your acreage or your farm. It's not, you know, it's not something like the government can't regulate or something like that. It's not a sacred object. It's just a tool. I'm glad you answered that way because I, I tend to agree. Our last guest was the, the founder of Moms Demand Action, who is incredibly optimistic um, and pointed to Switzerland as well. I mean, there are great examples of hyper-armed societies that require accountability and responsibility and are not as dangerous as ours. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just – I hear so many people throw up their hands and say there are 400 million guns in this country. It's, it's a lost cause, but it's not. No, I mean, well, like – after Newton, Newtown, like to me, if you can get past, like that happened in every country in the world. It happened to us in Tabor, Alberta, and it happened in Australia, where I think it was 22 kids were killed. When that happened, there was immediate gun reform. And there was immediate, like suddenly you had to register your guns and nobody complained. I mean, you can own a machine gun in Canada. You just have to pass a whole bunch of tests and you have to, uh, and you have to be subject to inspection and so on. Like it's just, it's regulated. It's not like you can't own one. It's just that there are a ton of rules around it and everyone seemed to accept that, you know, after these horrific tragedies where children are, you know, murdered by insane people. But I don't know, to me, if you've gone through that and it only made you believe in guns more, it's, it's hard for me to see how you get to meaningful gun control. It really is. I mean, yeah. Well, that's that's a, a political problem, not a physics problem. It is surmountable. Oh, that's true. In other words. I pulled this out, and I, I couldn't find the, the footnote for it, and I'm wondering where you, where you learned about intelligence services in other countries preparing dossiers on the possibilities of America's collapse. 
Oh, those were just anonymous sources, but there were certainly multiples of them from multiple countries. So yeah, like it's, I mean, those are high grade political sources. They're just anonymous, but um, yeah, that's definitely happening. I mean, of course it's happening, but it's also like, I was just told that by these people. That's all that I know. Um, I certainly know that it's happening in Canada and I know that it's happening in Germany. You do your best and you, you're clear up front that, you know, even as a a moderate in Canada, you're pretty liberal, at least on the American spectrum, and you do your best to be fair, but it's pretty clear that the majority of the moral burden lies with a certain American party that now has an armed militant wing. Your words, how do Canadians think about the mutation of the Republican Party? Well, it's really fascinating in a way because it hasn't affected our conservative party. And so there's a real strong contrast. Like our liberal party and the American Democratic Party are not all that different. But the Canadian Conservative Party and the American Republican Party are night and day. And I say that as someone who has written against the Canadian Conservative Party my whole life, right? Like they don't, they certainly would not consider me a fan in any way. But, you know, Doug Ford, Rob Ford's brother, you know, the most conservative politician in Canada, I mean, he's going to go after these truckers immediately. It would never occur to him to do anything else. And it makes a huge difference. Like, I remember one of the one of the questions I'm asked is like, how did social media play into the the violence in the United States? And I'm like, well, it obviously had an effect, but Facebook also happened everywhere else in the world, and it didn't have that effect. Like in our country, Christian Friedland, who was a who was then foreign minister, like there was a Russian campaign to smear her. She's a Ukrainian Canadian. She was a journalist. She's literally persona non grata in Russia. And they came after her because her grandfather had worked on a Nazi uh, newspaper during the Second World War. And what immediately happened was that Tony Clement, the conservative, like her opponent, gave a press conference where he said, this is nonsense. Please ignore it. Don't report on it. And let's all get like, we should all know that this is a smear that has nothing to do with reality. And the story died. Right. And the conservative press ignored it. You know, because they want to, when they get the country back, it's going to be their country. Like, it's not going to be Russia's country. Um, and so I think it's a question of will. Like, when you have people that hate each other so much that they're they're wearing shirts that say, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat, um, once that un- sense of unity is broken, it's really broken. And it's hard to, and, and it's kind of nothing can go right after that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, I'm very careful in the book because I really do believe the problems are structural, hoping that the Republican Party, you know, gets different members in it. That's beside the point. And I think getting mad at Trump beside the point. The problems here are really structural. But on the other hand, you know, when you have the Josh Hawley's of the world raising their fists to rioters who are desecrating the institutions to which they belong. I mean, how can any country survive that? Yeah, well, we shall see. Um, And uh, I think the next uh, couple of years are going to be key. Um, But but I want to end on a a high note, and I'm going to use your own words. Not a question, just a prompt. You wrote, the world needs America. It needs the idea of America, the American faith, even if that idea was only ever a half-truth. The rest of the world needs to imagine a place where you can become yourself, where you can shed your past, where contradictions that lead to genocide elsewhere flourish into prosperity. I hope you still believe that. 
I, I mean, I hope you realize this book is not written out of contempt, but out of love, right? Like this is not a, uh, a work of snobbery or something like this is from someone who is, it's written out of sadness, right? At what's happening rather than, you know, like contempt or something like that. And yeah, I mean, I, I do think that a world without America, like it's very easy to complain about America, but a world without it is going to be a lot poorer and a lot you know, more dangerous and a lot more democratic and less, sorry, and a lot less democratic. And, um, you know, the consequences will be felt everywhere. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Stephen, it's been great having you. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah. Real pleasure talking to you. Thanks again to Stephen for joining me. The link to his new book, The Next Civil War, can be found in the show description. For more about Stephen and his work, visit stephenmarsh.com. You can also follow Stephen on Twitter at at Stephen Marsh. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.